Good morning. All right. For those of you I haven't met, uh, my name is Matthew Lee. I'm one of the newest elders here at IDC. Um, as Matt Steele said earlier, if you're confused about which elder you're talking to, I'm the much younger and bronzer of the three. So. <laughs> In 2003, I was uh, deeply moved by a movie about a lost son and a loving father. This movie was none other than Finding Nemo. <laughs> in, the movie, in the movie, Nemo gets lost and his father Marlin uh, goes on a quest to find him and refuses to give up until he's found. It reminds me of the faithfulness of God as he looks out and seeks after his lost children. Throughout redemptive history, we can see him narrowing down his focus and then through Christ, giving us a way to come back to him. My hope this morning is that we would get a glimpse of the faithfulness of God as he fulfills his promise to redeem humanity. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thankful, we're thankful for your faithfulness, Lord, that you look down from heaven and you show grace and compassion, and you draw men to yourself for your glory and for our good. Apply this word to our hearts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue to uh, move through this series in Genesis, today we'll look at chapter 5 and the beginning of 6. And so far we've studied um, in chapters 1 and 2 the creation account where God brings all things into being by the power of his word. We also see him create man in his own image and likeness. In chapter 3 we witness the fall where Adam and Eve they rebel against God by listening to the voice of the serpent, bringing sin and separation and shame into this world. Last week in, in chapter 4, Pastor Daniel showed us how sin has impacted all of humanity as we zeroed in and looked at the first murder account where Cain kills his brother Abel. When you look at it all together, it seems a little bit bleak. Yet through it all, the author of Genesis is weaving in the grace of God and the mercy of God and the promises of God. Back in chapter 3, we're told that there is coming a day when the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. This seed is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the one who will put an end to sin. He is the one who will defeat death, and he is the one who will bring reconciliation and an everlasting kingdom. The question is, how will he arrive? That's what we hope to explore in this text this morning. So we will split this passage into two primary sections. First, we'll look at chapter 5 and explore the expansion of humanity as we look at the first 10 genealogies. And then secondly, we'll look at the corruption of humanity as we study the conditions that brought about the flood. As we walk through this text, my hope is that you will hold on to this one key idea, this main idea, and that is that God is faithful to redeem humanity despite our rebellion by keeping his promise. By keeping his promise. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Walter um, preached in, in chapter 2, and he talked about this cultural mandate that we are given by God. And he defines this cultural mandate as humanity's assignment to exercise dominion over the earth, subdue it, and develop its hidden potential. And we're going to look a little bit at that as we study this expansion of humanity. First, let's look at the source of the expansion. 
It says in chapter 5, verse 1, This is the book of the genealogy or generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in, his like, in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So even though this is titled the generations of Adam, Adam is not first mentioned here, but God is. Three times we're told in these opening two verses that God is the one who created humanity. And this is a fundamental truth that we must remember because we are prone to forget the basics. Beyond that, because of sin, we are actually inclined to all together reject the basics. So regardless of what humanistic philosophers may say or secular scholars may teach, we are not here by happenstance or accident. God has created us. And apart from him, there is no genealogy for humanity. All things start with him. And that's why the, the author of Colossians writes, when regarding, regarding Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. We also see that we're made in his likeness. This means that we're called to both commune with God and rule with God by exercising dominion over his creation. As the image bearers of God, we are created to be his representatives here on earth, to speak his word, to speak his truth, to proclaim his glory. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We also see in verse 2 that the author again is reminding us that we are created with two distinct but complementary roles, male and female. This gives us the ability to both procreate and cultivate. We cannot populate the earth without a nuclear family, so it is imperative that we have a, a man, a woman, and their dependents. This forms the most basic unit of society, and it is foundational to the creation of humanity. In verse 3 through 31, we see the cycles of expansion. And on the surface, it appears to be a bit repetitive, and that's because it is. You see, this person begot that person, they lived X amount of years, and they died. And then it goes on to the next and to the next. Look with me at verse 3. It says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And it goes on, generation after generation. And it's tempting to look at this genealogy and just focus on the familiar names, or the ones that are seemingly exceptional. So you may hear a preacher preach an entire message on Enoch, the one who did not taste death, unlike the other nine men mentioned. They'll talk about how faithful he was and obedient he was, and they'll talk about how you too ought to walk with God like Enoch did. And while all of that is true, that's not the main point of this text. You may hear a, a preacher talk about Methuselah, who is the oldest man recorded in Scripture, living 969 years. From there, they might branch off and talk about the age of the earth or the condition of the atmosphere or what type of protein diet that he had that allowed him to live almost 1,000 years. And while those might have uh, bring about a lively discussion, that too is not the main idea of the text. 
This text is not about any one individual, but rather it is about the faithfulness of God. God in his kindness uses the very people who brought sin and misery into the world to also bring about his promise of a savior, Jesus. This text is about the lineage that leads to Christ. As we unpack the cycles of humanity, I want us to not look at every single person, but really draw our attention to names, lifespans, and death. First, why, does, why do we have these names? Why are these names preserved for us? In the Bible, names provide both historical and symbolic significance. Names allow us to identify specific historic periods which give credence and, and validity in, to the historicity of Scripture. We know things are valid when they are consistent. That's why it's important to note that the same names mentioned here in Genesis chapter 5 are also mentioned in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 when we see the lineage of Christ. Names also uh, show us how much God values us. On many occasions throughout the Bible, we see God even changing people's names. For instance, he changed Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, and Simon to Peter. It shows a closeness, an intimacy, a desire to know and be known. Names also reveal, at least in this case, in this genealogy, God's plan for redemption because they have meaning. For instance, Adam means man, Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Canaan or Canaan means possess, lament, or sorrow, Mahalel means the blessed one or to shine, Jared means shall come down, Enoch means teaching or disciplined, Methuselah means his death shall bring or the one who is sent, uh, Lamech means despairing or poor, and finally Noah means comfort and rest. When we put those meanings together in one complete sentence, you get this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. Is that not a picture of the gospel? Is that not a picture of the glory of God? That is why he shares and preserves these names. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, watching uh, America's Funniest Home Videos with my kids. And uh, we came across this clip. It was this young girl. She had to be like five. And she was dressed up like an old lady. So she had like the glasses, this little flowery dress, wrinkles drawn on. She had her wig cocked to the side. It was all gray. And in the video, she's like, I'm so old. I'm so old. And then you hear a mother in the background, sweetheart, how old are you? She says, I'm, I'm 33. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all died laughing, seriously. Because it, it really shows us that how we perceive age is really a matter of perspective. What we consider to be old now is vastly different than what they consider to be old in the days of Noah. I mean, then they were living to be six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. I don't even know if I would want to live that long, to be honest. I don't know. But the question is, why did God provide such long lifespans? Uh, I can provide at least three reasons. We have population, cultivation, and revelation. Let's look at population. First, God extended the lifespan of humanity so that we could populate the earth. And there's really no telling how many children some of these families had. Just for comparison, the Guinness World Record for the most children 
born to one couple, is 67. In, in the 1700s, Fyodor and his wife Valentina had 16 pair of twins, seven sets of triplets, and four sets of quadruplets. After that, she passed away. He remarried. His second wife had 18 more kids. And so uh, that means when Fyodor died, at the age of 76, he had fathered a total of 87 children. And we think our kids' ministry is lit. Like, that's some next-level stuff right there. Next level. But if it's possible for one man living in his 70s to have 80 kids, how many children can be born to a couple that lives 700 years? Some scholars estimate that the population pre-flood was the same as it is today in the billions. It has always been God's desire to fill the earth with people who bear his image. These long lifespans are just one way he expedites that process. It's encouraging to know that God gives us the means, provides us with the means to execute his commands, to execute the mission that he has for us. We also have cultivation. God provided extended lifespans so that people would have more time to contribute to the initial development of society. If you look back at uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 17 through 24, we can see that Cain and his descendants made several advancements um, in society. Unfortunately, most of those pertain to doing evil, but they were advancements nonetheless. They gained the skills to build cities and make music and, and work with various types of metal. With that in mind, it is reasonable to conclude that Seth's descendants, his lineage, also made advancements for society, for the glory of God. I mean, take a moment to think about some of the most prolific minds that we learn about in the world, like the Galileos and Leonardo da Vinci's and Einstein's. What would happen if they were given another 400 years to live? What type of discoveries would they have made? Think about Beethoven or, or Mozart or, or Louis Armstrong. What if they lived another 500 years? What type of music would they have made? You see, these long lifespans, they allow humanity to advance society in the arts and science, which ultimately reflect the creative glory of God. Lastly, we have revelation. God provided or extended the lifespan to help facilitate the transmission of revelation from one generation to the next. Some people don't have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. So let's say down the line they, they take an ancestry test and they, they learn that they have a great-great-grandmother who was a missionary or perhaps a great-great-grandfather who was a pastor. What do you think the first thought would be that comes to their mind? Man, I wish I had a chance to talk to them. Man, I wish I had a chance to hear their stories, to learn of their experience, to, to glean wisdom from them. For these first 10 generations, this was not just a wish, but a reality. Even after the fall, in God's kindness, Adam was able to see so many of his descendants, all the way down to the seventh generation. When reflecting on the lineage of Seth, John Calvin writes, when the family of Seth had grown into a great people, the voice of Adam might daily resound in order to renew the memory of creation, the fall, and the punishment of man. To testify of the hope of salvation, which remained after chastisement, and to rejoice or recite the judgments of God by which all might be instructed. 
If you do the math, Seth, who is Adam's son, when he died, Noah was actually 14 years old. That means Noah could have went up to Seth and asked him, hey, what was it like when your dad was in the garden? And he could have answered that question legitimately. So you don't have to hear from someone who heard from someone who heard from someone. You can go straight to the source when people are living so long. And although we don't have 900 years to live like Adam, we don't have that ability, we do have the responsibility to pass the faith on to the next generation. We have to ask ourselves, will our great-great-grandchildren say we were among the people who walked with God, who called out to the Lord, who trusted in God's plan for redemption? Another aspect of the genealogy that we have to, we, we can't ignore really, is the prevalence of death. Nine times we see the phrase, and he died. It reminds us that death is seemingly inescapable. Unless the Lord returns soon, all of our lives will end and be punctuated with that same sentence. And he died, and she died. We're reminded in the book of Romans, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is something we all have to reckon with. Many of us have lost loved ones, friends, family, parents, children, colleagues, some of you might be looking death in the eye right now as you're processing the diagnosis of a terminal illness. It's critical that we understand and have a proper view of death. The Apostle Paul expresses how believers ought to view death when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This statement, to die is gain, it really has so many implications. First, let me tell you what it does not mean. To die is gain does not mean that the Christian should desire death because he hates his life. That's not the case because time and again we're called to find joy even in the most difficult circumstances. To die is gain does not mean that the Christian should not grieve over the death of a loved one. It's not unspiritual to grieve or to weep when we lose those we love. Until Christ return, death is still an enemy that robs us of the presence of those who we hold dear. Therefore, we must continue to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What, what, what does it mean to die is gain? It means that the Christian should view his death as a means of exalting Christ. Death is an opportunity to bear witness to the hope that we have in Christ. It should point others to the power of the gospel as we look forward, anticipating the day when we see the Lord face to face. We are not merely created to live and die, but to live faithfully and to die well. To die as gain means that a Christian's death actually frees him from the labors and trials and temptations of this world. I don't know about you, but I, I get really tired of fighting my flesh every single day. Every day I'm reminded of how weak I am and frail I am. Uh, last year we had a, a flag football game with the teens. I ran one route and pulled my hamstring, and I was done for like three weeks. I was like, man, I'm so frail. But when I look forward and I think about the death for the Christian, it actually frees us of the shackles of this broken world and these mortal bodies as we look in anticipation to step into untainted glory. We see a glimpse of that here um, in chapter 5. And in verse 24, we see how Enoch walked with God and did not experience death. 
that reveals that the, only the power of God and communion with God will keep us from death. Even our Lord, Jesus Christ, he died in our place, taking on himself the punishment that we deserve so that those who place their faith in him, those who trust in him, those who believe in him, those who, who cast their all on his once and for all sacrifice need not fear death. Only he can break the cycle of death and provide us with everlasting life. We also see in chapter 5 the promise of expansion. The genealogy ends with Noah because he is the one who will continue on the expansion of humanity. He will carry on the promise of God. In a sense, he is a type of Christ because God will use him to deliver humanity from utter destruction. In verse 29, his father Lamech prophetically called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toils of our hand. Once again, Noah's name means rest and comfort. Is it not fitting that he would bring forth the descendant who would become a curse on our behalf? It says in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Christ, or curses every man who hangs on a tree. Is it not fitting that he would bring forth a descendant who would one day cry out with open arms, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. It is not Noah who provides our ultimate rest, but Christ. He is the one who fulfills the promises of God. He is the one who expands the kingdom of God. He is the one who, as the author of Hebrews says, will bring many sons to glory. Christ is to be praised. Closing out this idea of the expansion of humanity, we now shift our attention to the corruption of humanity. In chapter 6, it says this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took, as their, or they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These are, were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, I'm going to be honest. If you just Google this, you're going to go through, down a whole bunch of rabbit trails. I highly suggest you don't do that. That's because there are countless interpretations and debates about some of these key terms. Like, who are the sons of God? What is this 120 years about? Where did the Nephilim come from? And even further down, why does God regret making humanity? In the time left, I will not be able to answer every single one of these questions in detail, but I can highlight two key points. One, corruption leads to judgment. And two, judgment is not without hope. Let's look at the cause of this corruption. In order to first understand this text, you must know who the sons of God are. And I'm going to give you and show you my cards up front. I believe that these are fallen angels or demons. First, we see that the, the sons of God are contrasted with the daughters of men. And the difference is not between the words sons and daughters, but between the phrase of God and of man. The difference is that their origin is different. Their nature is different. Additionally, we see that the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament is almost exclusively used to refer to angels and angelic beings. 
those who are the direct creation of God. We see that most clearly in the book of Job. In chapter 1, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is a heavenly meeting. There are no humans present. Finally, we see in verse 4 that the unnatural union between the sons of God and the daughters of men result in the creation of the Nephilim. This would explain why the corruption and wickedness was so pervasive during this time. The Nephilim means fallen ones. But it is also translated giants. The Nephilim were mighty men of war, and they would have contributed to the widespread violence and depravity on the face of the earth. Uh, think about this for a moment. Isn't it interesting how the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as wives. Doesn't that language sound familiar? Back in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve was deceived by the serpent, she saw that the fruit was good to the eye, and she took of it, and she ate it. It shows us that the enemy's tactics have never changed. Satan entices all of creation to desire what they ought not have and take what they do not need. His goal has always been to convince us that God is not enough. That was the case with Adam and Eve in the garden. That was the case with these fallen angels right here who rebelled against God, and that is still the case today. That's why we're asked in James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. The tactics are the same. We're always told that God isn't enough. But when we are truly satisfied in Christ and we truly seek God for all of our needs, we will not be so easily carried away by the passions of our flesh. We would not so readily fall for Satan's deception. If the Bible teaches us nothing else, it's that God is abundantly more than enough. This pre-flood narrative shows us that we need to be keenly aware and of spiritual warfare and satanic influences. There's a reason Paul tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This acknowledgement of spiritual forces of evil, this is not a charge for us to run and look for demons and Satan around every corner. But it is a reminder that we ought to be mindful of our actions and interactions. Because where there is demonic influence, corruption and destruction will surely follow. We also see the consequence of corruption in this text. In verse 3, we're told uh, that the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now, there are two possible interpretations for this text. The first is that it could mean that uh, human lifespan will not exceed a hundred and twenty years. And this is compelling because after the flood, we see that the lifespan of humanity rapidly declines. Uh, there are others who believe that this could mean that humanity would have 120 years to repent while Noah is building the ark before the judgment comes. I think both, both interpretations have some validity. But either way you interpret it, the emphasis is the same. There is a limitation to God's patience with sinful humanity. He will not withhold his judgment forever. 
The consequences of sin and corruption will lead to judgment and justice. We also see in verses 6 and 7 that God is emotionally impacted by our sins. It says that the Lord regretted. It says that it grieved him. At the end of verse 7, it says, I am sorry that I have made them. Now, these very natural terms and human-like traits sometimes trip us up when they're attributed to God. This does not mean, however, this does not mean that God is not sovereign. It does not mean that God would have changed his mind if he could have. It doesn't mean that God somehow made a mistake. What it means is that God is intimately connected with his people, those who bear his image and those who are made in his likeness. It means that he is supremely invested in our well-being, in our flourishing. It means that he cares about justice, righteousness, and holiness. We don't serve an apathetic God. We don't serve a God who is devoid of emotion. God is able to experience and express a range of emotion that is far more complex than we can ever fathom. Some people think, well, if God really loved humanity, he wouldn't judge us at all. He'd just let everybody in heaven. That couldn't be further from the truth. Because unlike us, God does not, not allow his emotions to cloud his judgment. Both are perfect. God can on one hand lament the fact that he has to judge sinful humanity, while on the other hand affirm that it is necessary and right and good to judge sinful humanity. These are not mutually exclusive categories. Both the love of God and the justice of God are intertwined in the holiness of God. Verse 7, it shows us that holistic corruption results in holistic destruction. Everything must be undone. He's going to blot out everything from the land. Man, animal, creeping things, birds of heaven, everything. This coming act of judgment is really a reversal of God's creative work. But I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that it doesn't end at chapter, or at verse 7. This, this chapter actually ends with a word of hope. In the end it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This word favor can also be translated grace, and it's the first time it's actually mentioned in the Bible. Amid all the rebellion, all the, the corruption, the wickedness, and the grief, God is still able to look out and provide grace. Our world is increasingly becoming more and more like the days of Noah. When we watch the news or look at the trajectory of our culture, it can be very overwhelming. It can be very disheartening. Between school shootings and political scandals, unjust laws and ongoing wars, the distortion of identity and the dismantling of biblical morals and values. Sometimes it's hard to see, is God's hand really still for us? But isn't it encouraging to know that God can sift through it all, all the chaos, all the wickedness, and still find time to provide grace? God looked at Noah, and Noah found favor. However, it was not just Noah that he saw, but it was Christ who is the personification of grace. It was not Christ that he saw, but his church, those who are the recipients of grace. And it was not even just the church that he saw, but the kingdom, which is the culmination of grace. All things are under 
the sovereign rule of God as he extends grace. So how are we to apply this passage to our lives? For those who are in Christ, the, the call is simple. Trust in the promise of God. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is our eternal hope, to be with our Lord, to dwell in eternal righteousness, to walk in his grace, untainted by sin. For those who are not in Christ, the call is simple. Repent and place your trust in the promise of the Lord. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Don't get swept away by the flood of judgment. Don't go out chasing after sin. Don't place your hope in trivial things that have no eternal value. Choose Christ this morning. Enter the ark this morning and find your rest and security in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are gracious. We're grateful that you are both loving and just. We're grateful that you can look down the corridors of time and see something more glorious than we can even imagine. I pray that we would uh, give you honor because of your faithfulness. I pray that we would trust all the more in your promise of Christ and what he offers. Thank you, Father, for all that you do and all that you are. We submit this in Jesus' name. Amen.